Welcome to this episode of the Good Idea Podcast. I'm Maria Knapp, my partner at Control Risks. In each episode, we unpack an idea or a concept in ESG and sustainable business. We look at whether it works, whether it doesn't, and what good ideas we can draw from people who are working in this space. In today's episode, we explore ESG and supply chains, merging rules and regulations in supply chains, what's the role of compliance in driving sustainable supply chains, and what are some of the limitations of that approach? So we have here today Yadaira Orsini, who's a human rights expert in the ESG team here at Control Risks. Welcome, Yadaira. Thank you very much, Maria. Glad to be here. Looking forward to the discussion. And we also have JJ Masner de la Tour, who is a subject matter expert on minerals and traceability, currently a senior manager at Microsoft. Welcome, JJ. Thanks, Maria. Thanks, Yadaira. Happy to be here. So, JJ, I mentioned in my introduction that you had this experience in critical minerals and conflict minerals in particular at the beginning of your career. You were around when a kind of major legislation was introduced around the traceability of conflict minerals, and it sort of changed how you had to address really fundamental environment and social issues in supply chains. And I'd love to hear a little bit about your experience doing that? Yeah, well, Dodd-Frank really came about at a very early point in my career. Prior to being in the corporate sector, I was in the NGO sector for many years, and I was working at the nexus of business and human rights, particularly around security and human rights in the extractive sector. And so obviously, Dodd-Frank was very germane to my work. Now, being in the corporate sector and responsible for these sorts of disclosures, I, I now have sort of a multitude of perspectives on it, both from its beginning and also its implementation. And, you know, I got to say, looking back, Dodd-Frank was quite revolutionary. Uh, there's a lot of talk today about supply chain traceability and due diligence, but really Dodd-Frank was the pioneer. It was the, it was the OG of traceability, if you will. By requiring U.S. publicly listed companies to check their supply chains for conflict minerals, that's 3TG, tin, tantalum, tungsten, and gold, and to determine whether they come from the Democratic Republic of Congo or its adjoining countries, and then to conduct due diligence to make sure that mineral sourcing does not support um, groups or, or, or human rights abuses. The law and its accompanying regulation was, when you think of it, really ahead of its time. But when Dodd-Frank first arrived on the scene, and this was when I was back in the NGO sector, there was a lot of skepticism about it. I recall some very tense conferences and roundtables on the DC policy circuit about how it might have negative, unforeseen consequences. You know, there was a concern at the time that Dodd-Frank would lead to a de facto embargo on sourcing minerals from DRC, as the requirements were so arduous that companies would just decide to avoid DRC altogether. But that didn't happen. Industry adapted. And as we saw, we still see a precursor to the kind of new traceability requirements that are emerging today. And industry adapted. And not only did industry adapt, but industry realized that it had to work collectively to build a system of compliance in the upstream supply chain at an industry level. And I think that that collective approach um, was obviously born out of necessity. But looking back, it required a significant level of cooperation between competitors, uh, as well as building bridges between the downstream purchases and the upstream mineral supply chain 
in a way that had not happened before. So in that sense, I think it was an important driver where we are now. So it's great to hear that, you know, one of the responses was industry driven and and not quite collective action, but certain coordination within industries. You mentioned, though, that it was a heavy lift for companies and, you know, going from from zero to to nearly fully traceable. What did you find were strategies that you could take to make it pragmatic, to make it kind of feasible? Because it's a it's a huge ask to trace it right back, especially to somewhere like the DRC. We know there's a lot of circumvention of the rules and and um, some porous borders. And so, you know, within your within the context of um, your NGO that you were working with and, and companies that were affiliated to that work, how, how do they actually make it work in practice? What bits of it were implementable? Well, I think, first of all, you know, it's important to sort of understand the reality of, of where we are. I think for, you know, bystanders to industry, many people may already believe that, that industry is able to trace everything in their products all the way back to, to the origins of the raw materials. That's just not how supply chains work at the moment. Certainly from a consumer perspective, I think you're, you're absolutely right. There's a perspective that, that we yeah, should be Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and there have been significant strides in various industries. You know, if you look at, say, the coffee sector, you know, fair trade coffee, being able to, you know, trace the, the coffee beans back to the smallhold farmer in, in Kenya, what, what have you. I think that consumers may well have an expectation as a baseline that, that we already have this visibility. But of course, not every supply chain is made equal. Some are extremely complex. And if you look at, say, the electronic sector, brands will likely have direct contracts with, say, tier one, which is sort of final assembly, tier two, which is sort of final components, maybe into tier three. And then that, that contractual relationship tends to stop. Company suppliers will have contracts with their suppliers, will have contracts with their suppliers cascading through the supply chain. But that doesn't necessarily mean that a brand has a direct relationship with those entities and it further upstream. Bearing in mind that depending on the component, the raw materials may enter a company supply chain at, say, tier five, tier six, tier seven, maybe even higher. So there just isn't that direct connection, maybe not even necessarily that direct knowledge. You're building a program from a place where you have very little leverage with higher tier supply chain actors that you may not even know who they are. And that is a heavy lift. But I think that by taking this industry approach and recognizing where the choke points in the supply chains are, so smelters and refiners, processes of the raw materials, industry has been able to institute you know, audit programs that give some level of assurance that those facilities and supply chain meeting certain threshold standards. Working your way through the tiers of supply chain is definitely making companies that are exposed to new European regulations nervous about how they do it and the stakes are high. Yadira and I are often talking about the kind of impact that it will have on companies if they can't get the full visibility that they need. And, you know, you talked a little bit about kind of the market access restrictions and the impact on that, which is an interest of yours, Idara. Yes, very much so. And especially if you have, you looked at the the first draft of the EU CSDDD 
how they talked about this concept of business relationships. And and that was quite fuzzy for a lot of people. Hopefully the new draft is addressing that point now. But, you know, we are seeing this new wave of, of access to market type of regulations, obviously Dodd-Frank. Dodd-Frank led the the basis for that, but we see now the UFLPA come into force. Which effectively um, says if you don't if you don't comply with the regulations of your goods can't enter of, the market. Of this, yeah, yeah, of this rule, your goods can't enter the U.S. market. There's a lot of similar regulations to that. Yeah. Certainly, an emerging trend, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And and you see also the EU has now engaged in a lot of discussions to bring similar type of legislation to the forum. So we're looking at the EU forced labor regulation, which is being discussed now. There's a proposal on it. So I think looking at that environment and, and this context, JJ, from your experience, what are some of the lessons learned from, from the U.S.? If you are thinking about, you know, you're a U, EU company that's starting to come to grips with this, that this is the first time that they are seeing this type of regulation come to the forum, what would you advise? What do you think are, are lessons that can be shared? Knowing, of course, that the UFLPA is quite recent, itself, but, but, you know, any discussions about how to even get started, understand and, and implement these? Well, I think, first of all, we need to take a step back and recognize just what a monumental shift this has been in terms of regulation, because I think we are seeing a massive sea change in how governments think about driving compliance. If we go back to Dodd-Frank, it is fundamentally a disclosure reporting requirement. Of course, companies have an incentive to demonstrate that their supply chains are clean or, in the case of Dodd-Frank, conflict-free. At its core, it demands that you demonstrate you have a system um, and that that system that you manage works insofar as meeting the objectives that the regulation is designed to set. But it does not in itself directly impede doing business. But new traceability and due diligence regulations, particularly regarding forced labor, have taken a new and innovative turn. This new style of regulation take something that was traditionally reporting focused to instead being an access to market issue. By framing ESG risks and impacts as a trade issue, whereby your ability to trace your supply chain, identify all the entities in it, and prove that none of them impinge on, on specific rights or generate specific impacts, governments are incentivizing company behavior in a whole new manner. I actually highly recommend John Foote's Forced Labor and Trade blog that explores many of these issues. And I have to say it's remarkably well written. I've never imagined that a blog on trade law could be quite so riveting and compelling. Uh, but We're pretty geeky here, JJ, so <laughs> it's, it's okay. You're, you're, you're in a safe space. Um, among friends. Among, you're yeah. definitely among friends. But we know, we know that some of the regulations, particularly the European le legislation that when it comes out, is looking at financial penalties as well. But See, it sounds like you're saying that the trend around market access restriction is sort of it's bigger than that almost. It's 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 game changing because of the way that companies will calculate the risk for themselves. They're, they can't they can't cost it away, as it were. Precisely. Yeah. I mean, these regulations are still relatively new. So we'll see how effective they are and how industry adapts, but but I think you can see the direction of travel. Disclosure-style regulations are likely going to coexist with trade-based access to market ones, and they'll likely each serve a specific purpose for specific authorities. But I think you, you are likely to see this two-track, two-tier, I guess, system in, in the future. 
But to your question, you know, what lessons can be derived for, for companies in this space? And at a high level, I think every company is now going to need soup to nuts mentality when it comes to understanding their, their supply chain. And actually, I would go one step further and say, come to think of it, when we factor in things like circularity and end of life, which are also increasingly part of the conversation, maybe we should say soup to nuts to breakfast. But you know, ultimately, we are going to have to take a very holistic viewpoint of our supply chains. I was trying to make a joke about intermittent fasting, but I think I think there's <laughs> no, no space for that anymore. But you, we talked earlier about the fact that this is a significant lift for companies. And, you know, one of the central points where we're trying to unpick here is what's the impact taking a compliance-led approach to this? You know, what is the effect of having such a significant compliance burden involved in these disclosure and reporting and the, and the processes that underpin it. So I guess one of the questions we need to probably start with from that perspective is who, who's involved in this? Like what is currently compliance's role in this, you know, in your current role, I know you, you know, work within that compliance ecosystem. Who do you see as being involved in kind of working on these issues within companies? I, I mean, it is fundamentally in many ways, you know, a compliance function just how companies tend to think about it. But I think that it's going to differ from one company to another. And it also comes down to how companies prioritize or think about ESG. Some leaders in the field may go above and beyond when it comes to ESG. But for some, you know, perhaps it's still not seen as, as, a, as a core business necessity. So I think that that may also influence how these requirements thought of, how they're framed, how they reacted to with, within a company. And sure, increasingly, it may be seen as essential or even mandatory to specific expectations or requirements. But I think, you know, if, if we think about these regulations solely through a compliance lens or solely through an ESG lens, there is the risk that can be siloed away from what is considered core business functions. So for supply chain traceability, I think a risk that some might run is that it does get lumped into that ESG bucket and it is seen as nice to have or even a reluctant have to have for anyone who does not prioritize ESG. But I think it absolutely can be both things at once. If, if you don't have comprehensive visibility over your supply chain, then you're going to lack the ability to identify the provenance of the materials in your supply chain. And so lack the ability to comprehensively identify ESG risks, let alone manage or, or mitigate those risks. But equally, if a company does not have sufficient visibility to monitor ESG risks in its supply chain, it's also going to lack the ability to track risks that impact elements such as, say, continuity of supply or pricing, security, and, and so on. So I think that the more that we're able to align ESG with established business practices and objectives, we can pull in the same direction and demonstrate that what may be thought of as an ESG function can actually drive a business impact. Yeah. Okay. So there's a number of different, I guess, business partners involved in that, you know, procurement, yeah. compliance, traceability, sustainable supply chains, responsible business, et cetera, within companies. Risk management mm -hmm. plays a part in there as well. So we've been talking about this compliance e ecosystem and, and the stakeholders that have a role to play there. 
Do you think that the compliance function from your experience in your organization, but also things that you've seen in other industries or companies, has that compliance function changed because of this regulation that we're seeing or or other factors have come into play? Has there been a change in the compliance function? I, I would say that it's not so much a change so much as an intention to to move faster and dive deeper. I mean, I think that what we're trying to drive towards is not necessarily new. It's perhaps that the expectations are stronger and uh, and upon us, you know, in in the much shorter term. So it's not necessarily changing an approach so much as speeding it up and 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 going further. And and do you think that there is a new subject matter that enters the room, if you will, that, you know, compliance functions have to become experts on different topics all of a sudden. And and how does that work in terms of, of your engagement with those other stakeholders in the in the ecosystem? Yes. I mean, insofar as say a regular I mean, let's just take Dodd Frank, for example. You know, going back to, to the original, insofar as Dodd Frank focused on 3TG in the Democratic Republic of Congo, just by virtue, that regulation will have brands, supply chain actors focused much more acutely on 3TG minerals and their place in the supply chain and DRC and its adjoining countries as sources of those minerals. But at its core, we're still talking about the same structure, the same function of supply chain traceability. It's simply that we say speeding up or diving deeper to meet a specific subject thematic need, but the infrastructure is still the same. The compliance expectations are still the same. And I think that that is perhaps going back to what bucket do we put traceability in? I think it goes back to that, that issue of how we think about it. Because if we think about it as an infrastructure, as a process, first and foremost, to get to a specific answer, rather than thinking that we need to make everything around 3TG or everything around DRC, focusing on the the infrastructure and the process, I think, is what's actually going to get us there faster. Obviously, with recognition that there are certain aspects of uh, specific mineral supply chain or a sourcing country that you know we need to be aware of in terms of uh, impacts. But nevertheless, fundamentals are still the same. And it sounds like, you know, with the type of co- commodity you're talking about that Dodd-Frank was touching on, you know, conflict minerals, it was really essential to have that industry collaboration because there was really no other way to get right down to tier six, seven, right down to kind of primary resource. So that that infrastructure was a dependency for for you to really get the level of visibility and traceability you needed. and. I guess what we're seeing talking to companies dealing with similarly, you know, sensitive or high risk areas is is that that continues to be a dependency for them because where there's a blind spot, it's it's a blind spot can really only be elucidated through an industry lens, a sector industry lens. We see the frameworks that we work with ESG and sustainability frameworks trying to address this, but ultimately the reality on the ground that comes from a collective industry view of, you know, what all the companies are are seeing at, you know, retaining that is a really important point of what you're, you're talking through. The, there's also something else that's really coming through what you're saying is this, um, and Yadara asked, you know, do compliance functions need to become specialists in a new matter? In fact, 
there's like 10 or 12 new matters that companies are dealing with within ESG and sustainable supply chains. And growing. And growing. <laughs> so in your own experience, how do you deal with that moving target of emerging issues to capture? You know, Dodd-Frank was looking at one thing. We know the new regulations are looking at sometimes specified, sometimes unspecified categories of issues within you know, environment and human rights or, or more broadly than that. Well, I think it, it gets back to the same question. Are we driving, first of all, process or, first of all, impact? And I would argue that the process begets the impact. So in, in differentiating between strategy and process, you know, if we go back to Dodd-Frank again, you know, a decade ago, conflict minerals drove new thinking and actions on supply chain mapping. You know, it did spark new processes that built up to, you know, an overarching strategy of reducing the impacts of mineral sourcing. But since in the ensuing 10 or so years, there has been an expansion in how we think about impacts in the supply chain, everything from forced labor to <coughs> carbon emissions, to water usage and so forth. And so the fundamentals of supply chain traceability infrastructure that we need to drive the visibility, the understanding and the action, I think is consistent for all of them. And you know, tomorrow there may be new requirements. And so that, that infrastructure is going to provide the basis for being able to get from, from A to B. But we've talked a lot about regulatory drivers and business drivers, but I think we also have to recognize that you know, consumers and shareholders are also driving many of these conversations and driving many of these, these expectations. And as you said earlier, their expectations are typically very high. Exactly, exactly. And consumers are putting greater emphasis on responsible sourcing and, and, and sustainability. Consumers want to feel good about their purchases, particularly those that are ever present in their lives, like their phones or their computers or their cars or their clothes. And so I think that this expansion of new topics in supply chain management, yes, it is going to be driven by regulators, as, as we've discussed today. But I think it's also going to be driven by consumers and shareholders as well who have an interest in specific ESG strategies and specific impacts. Um, so I think in that sense, the infrastructure is incredibly important because we cannot necessarily predict what tomorrow's focus area may be. But so long as we have the infrastructure in place to be able to, to perform the mapping and the traceability that's, that's necessary, we can begin to dive deeper into our supply chains, ask those questions and take action where necessary. Yeah. And when you think about all of those different drivers, there's no shortcut. There's no quick fix to, to that sort of, uh, to those sorts of challenges. And looking at your point around the, the infrastructure as well and, and, you know, bridging the process with the impact, one of the trends that we're seeing at the moment is this emergence of SaaS platforms to help companies deal with scale and complexity of, of mapping and managing risks and supply chains. What do you make of that, JJ? What are the pros and cons of, of such approaches? Yeah, there has been a significant amount of innovation in this area in, in SaaS, software as a service. You know, everything from blockchain to artificial intelligence and machine learning to geospatial imaging, digital twins, DNA, chemical and isotopic tracing of raw materials. And you know what? I think that they all have their place, but maybe with a bit of a qualifier. The reality is the supply chains are massive and they are dynamic and they're constantly changing. 
we need ways to capture that data and cover any gaps in that data, make sense of it, and, and validate it. All of those methodologies and approaches will help. And I think it's safe to say that there is not just one solution. We're going to have to leverage many solutions to be able to get there. But we can also not tech our way out of this. Yes, technology can help, but the key to unlocking supply chain traceability, I think, is, is much more human. Supply chain data is not some big mystery. Most of the data in the upstream supply chain that the downstream brands need likely already exists in the form of purchase orders, bills of materials, bills of lading, export-import documents, full material disclosures. There is an enormous amount of data available. It's just that nobody shares it. And downstream brands in particular rarely, if ever, have access to it. Now, sometimes it's for reasons of confidentiality or competitive advantage or security, whatever the reason. It's not the lack of data that impedes traceability. It's the inability to gain access to it. So traceability is going to have to rely on engagement and norm setting within industry. Engaging with indirect suppliers over whom downstream brands have all to no leverage to convince them to share potentially sensitive data and establishing industry baselines of expectations on what data should be shared, how it should be managed, and so on. So yes, tech solutions will be enablers to allow us to scale, but unless we get supply chain actors to buy in and participate, we're not going to have the data to manage in the first place. So the solution is perhaps more relational than it is informational. I'm I'm really glad you brought up that point, JJ, because that's definitely something that we we see and that we, you know, at the end of the day, it comes down to the engagement that you have with your suppliers and the trust that you're able to build to facilitate that movement of data that you need. So so I'm really glad that you brought that point because, you know, yes, technical solutions are are there and they are they can make your life a lot easier, but that doesn't replace the engagement that you need to have with your supply chain to be able to get not only the data, but to open up the spaces for any other conversations that you need to have in terms of issues like remediation of some adverse impacts that you need to have. Those conversations are never easy. So, so it's really good to have that strong relationship in the first place that allows all of those exchanges and, and conversations to happen. And and in your experience, JD, you know, you mentioned that's a core part of especially the traceability side of what you're doing. So what kind of engagement, you know, you having, you know, how are you doing that better as a result of the kind of infrastructure and processes that you've put in place? Well, I think I would go back to a topic that we touched on earlier about taking an industry approach, because I think that insofar as upstream actors concerned, uh, or midstream and upstream actors, indirect suppliers, where that relationship does not exist, where that, that contractual relationship does not exist, it's very difficult to move the needle. And so I think that's why it's critical to work at that industry level to make this a norm, to make this a baseline of participating in global supply chains, that a certain level of data sharing is, is expected and anticipated. But I think I would also make the point that we've been talking a lot today about how you know, we think about this from a downstream perspective. 
because many of these regulations focused on downstream brands. They are the ones who traditionally will disclose, report, you know, have to have to have these processes in place. But I also think we need to be mindful of impacts on the upstream itself because many of them are going to be quite far-reaching, I think. Now, to date, I think we have seen, maybe Dodd-Frank aside, see, seen minimal interaction between downstream brands and the mining companies that exist in the farthest upstream reaches of the supply chain. And a lack of end-to-end traceability often precludes most brands from knowing precisely where many of their raw materials originate. And without that knowledge, it is difficult to engage directly with miners, particularly where no business leverage exists and, and downstream purchasers may not even know if that specific mine is in their supply chain. But I think the pending rapid expansion in supply chain traceability soon will begin to make those end-to-end connections. And I suspect that when that happens, it will lead to a change in how downstream brands interact with the, the upstream supply chain. Now, to be clear, downstream brands have interested in ESG standards and impacts in mining for quite some time. But without those end-to-end linkages, the sector has, has followed a rising tide lifts all boats mindset. But once those end-to-end connections are made, I would expect to see downstream brands engage far more precisely, far more surgically, and much more robustly on ESG standards in the mining sector. I'd, I'd fully expect that downstream brands will place increasing emphasis on standards like the Initiative for Responsible Mining Assurance, IRMA, as basic requirements for mineral sourcing. So although we focus on how traceability impacts the downstream, I think we should also recognize it will have an impact on, on upstream supply chains as well, all the way through to the mine site level. I mean, it's, it's clear we're, we're focusing so much on the kind of the top of that supply chain pyramid, but it flows through the whole thing. And it sounds like in your experience to date, and certainly what you're saying, you know, you're expecting to see to come is that these, these rules, these new rules, these regulations, they're going to drive those connections that are so necessary to actually affect change. This has been a fascinating conversation. JJ, I'm so glad that we've been able to talk to you about this. Yadira and I talk, and I talk about this endlessly, and it's great <laughs> to have to have your Someone views in the mix. Join. And, um, you know, you've given us a, a huge amount of food for thought. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe. And be sure to check out our other podcasts as well, such as Decrypt, the podcast making sense of the cyber and technology issues impacting business. For all our analysis and information about services we offer to organizations worldwide, visit controlrisks.com.